program is brought to you by the Financing and Deploying Clean Energy Program at the Yale Center for Business and the Environment, a joint center at the Yale School of the Environment and the Yale School of Management. Welcome back to the Yale Clean Energy Future podcast. This is a podcast about creating a just and equitable clean energy transition through the COVID-19 pandemic and beyond. I'm your host, Katie Eppinger. Last episode, we gave lots of examples of what's called energy justice, but we also talked about the concept of environmental justice, and we thought it was a good idea to give you a brief survey of what that is as well. So we consulted one of Yale's resident environmental justice experts, Dr. Gerald Torres, to learn more. I'm Gerald Torres. I'm Professor of Environmental Justice at the Yale School of the Environment with an additional appointment at the Yale Law School. Besides environmental material, I teach environmental law, I teach environmental justice, I teach a course on critical race theory, and I teach federal Indian law. So that's what I do. Previously, Dr. Torres served as Deputy Assistant Attorney General for the Environment and Natural Resources Division of the U.S. Department of Justice. He served during the Clinton administration. And while there, he was instrumental in creating the Environmental Justice Executive Order, which was EO-12898. This mandates that federal agencies address disproportionately high environmental or health effects of their actions. And so I asked him, what is environmental justice? Well, that's actually a more complex question than you imagine. And let me tell you why. Most people mark its origins in the study that showed that most of the hazardous waste sites in the United States are placed in African-American communities. And that study he's talking about here is called Toxic Waste and Race in the United States. It was published in 1987 by the United Church of Christ. They look at the distributional impacts of environmental insults, and they ask which communities are more, more burdened by these environmental insults. That can involve both uh, not just siting questions, but it can involve things like enforcement decisions and where dollars are spent. Siting decisions are important because they determine where environmental hazards like a coal-fired power plant or a refinery are placed. So then when Dr. Torres talks of enforcement here, he means that there are consequences to the disproportionate enforcement of environmental laws and regulations. And we can just imagine that if the owner of a power plant is repeatedly getting away with breaking environmental health regulations, it's going to be a big problem for neighboring communities. The other thing is is a failure to investigate the kinds of health consequences related to environmental impacts. uh, They take that to be an expression of a lack of justice concerns in the enforcement process. In addition to broad questions about impact, planning, participation, big environmental statutes that are meant to protect everyone have tended to focus on health-based outcomes as if we're all uniform. And that sort of uniform, basic person that's used to set these exposure limits, for instance, tends to be imagined as a white person. I'll give you an example. The standards from under the Clean Water Act on whether fish are consumable by humans is based on the average consumption of fish uh, of the American people. Well, there are subpopulations that consume a lot more fish. And so the standard that would protect most Americans, in fact, left these communities vulnerable. So they're 
a lot of the Laotian community, especially the Hmong who are relocated after the Vietnam War, uh, in fact, uh, were heavy fish consumers. African-American community actually consumes more fish than, than the uh, dominant community. A lot of tribes uh, are you know, fish-based tribes and, and have uh, consume a lot of fish. So even though the standard was set as safe to consume, it was safe based on the consumption of far less fish than, than these communities. And how do we have all these environmental laws that go on to have distributional injustices? Well, part of it starts with who has a seat at the table, who gets to be in the room and gets considered when laws are created. There's also the process side, which is how can the process be constructed so that the voices of these communities can be heard at the point at which policy is being made? And let's go back to the fish example for a minute. That's a perfect example, right? If the process had been open to consider the uh, voices of the people who, in fact, consume fish in a far greater quantity than uh, the average American, the standard would have been set differently. A fishable and swimmable standards, which are the standards under the Clean Water Act, might have looked different. So you have both the, the concrete side, but you also have the process side. And both things have to be addressed in order to make an environmental protection system that has justice at its core. This process piece is called procedural justice. And there, as Dr. Torres mentioned, it's not just representation that's important, but understanding that groups aren't monolithic. So here's another example. When we think of energy production on rural tribal lands in the West, we can't craft policies and design solutions that will be uniformly applied because tribes are not all the same. Obviously, they have distinct geographies, resources, cultures, languages, governments, but critically, they have very different appetites for clean energy development. There are tribes whose economies currently rely on fossil fuels and those who want to be involved in clean energy production and everything in between. Two things. One, many tribes sit on a lot of conventional energy resources. Uh, So the Crow tribe, for example, the Navajo tribe, for example, sit on a lot of, of coal. Some of the tribes in the Dakotas sit on uh, gas reserves that can be achieved through fracking. Tribes are going to have different interests. The Council on Energy Resource Tribes, which was designed mainly to create a forum and to create a voice for energy resource tribes in the National Energy Dialogue. The National Congress of American Indians, for example, is, is actually taking uh, energy transition seriously. That's the National Congress of American Indians, an indigenous rights organization. One of the, the issues that has divided environmentalists, right, is the, the vast use of public lands for mass solar generation, for example. You know, the, the extent to which tribes want to use their land that way, they ought to be able to. The federal government's in a position to uh, explicitly aid tribes in the creation of alternative energy sources. And they also can can take the same kinds of concerns that we were discussing earlier, which is, look, if the tribe is going to go solar, the consideration ought to be complex, right? One is not just are we creating an uh, alternative energy source for these tribal members, are we training the tribal members to actually be players in that industry? So it's not like a casino, right? It's like, it's like tribal uh, enterprise that, in fact, reaches beyond 
the reservation, but certainly is a way to get energy out to places that are, are rural and harder to reach. You know, to the extent that there is an effort to reduce or depress the market for conventional energy sources, well, for some tribes, that's going to be a real issue, right? Because it's a, just like for some states, that's a real issue. Well, that has to be factored into the policy discussion. And the, the question has to be, to the extent that tribes are uh, quasi-sovereign entities, right, there have to be serious discussions about the federal government's role in the regulation of, of those resources. You know, we know already that many tribes are going to be um, uh, deleteriously affected by climate disruption. Well, it seems to me there's an obligation on the federal government side to take actions to reduce the speed at which climate disruption will occur to protect those tribes who are going to be badly affected. But, the, you know, you've got to weigh it against those tribes that have conventional energy resources. So if we're going to cut down the demand for that, what's our responsibility to those tribes too? It can be done through negotiation between, you know, government to government negotiations. And I think that's important. But we shouldn't pretend as though the issue is not there because it is, right? Uh, and I would love for tribes that, that want to do uh, alternative energy for them to create their own industries that do this. It'd be something that, that would be a benefit to the tribe and a benefit to those of us who aren't on tribal land. So we've now pulled out two of the main ideas in environmental justice. First, that some communities tend to be more negatively exposed to and impacted by environmental harms, but also receive fewer environmental benefits. That's distributional justice, and it's extremely relevant in how we go through the energy transition. Then second, we have how policies tend to systematically lack representation and engagement from environmental justice communities, particularly communities of color, and that's procedural justice. So then how do we begin to center equity and justice in energy policy? Here's Dr. Torres again. One of the things I did when I was working in the Clinton administration and we were drafting the executive order on environmental justice is I brought in um, a lot of, of environmental justice groups and I just asked them to talk to me. And it, the, the, the surprising thing to me was that it's, it's far broader than either just the distributional impacts or the location of one thing or the other that causes environmental harms. So there, there are things like the lack of green space in communities, which uh, they take to be not just an illustration of the you know park poor communities that poor people and, and people of color tend to live in, but a lack of concern with the public health benefits that can come by having a, a greener city. So that's one. They also looked at things like traffic, the location of high volume traffic routes through their communities, lack of access to medical facilities because of lack of, of, of public transportation, for example. And let's take a look at what that executive order ultimately includes. So the idea behind the executive order was we want to incorporate issues of environmental justice into the decision-making process in every agency that makes decisions that is likely to have an impact on the environment. So whether you're, you know, the Forest Service, whether you're the, the ag, ag Department, whether you're the National Highway Traffic Administration, whether you're the FAA, all these decisions, you don't think of them as being environmental agencies, but they make decisions that have an impact on the environment. 
we wanted them to think about environmental justice. And the, the idea was we're not likely to see any dramatic changes immediately, but as you naturalize the uh, inclusion of environmental justice in the decision-making process, what you're ultimately going to do is get better decisions and decisions that actually take it seriously, right? So that was the hope. The, the plan was to require every agency to produce a strategic plan for integrating uh, the executive order into their decision-making processes. It lost a little um, momentum. The current administration is talking about, you know, kind of pulling it out, dusting it off and saying, let's, let's give it another go. Uh, I suspect people might be more serious this time, but that was the idea. And so today, back under an administration interested in environmental justice, we have seen some changes in the executive branch. The idea that was floated during the campaign was to add a new environmental justice division at the Department of Justice. Bad idea. Uh, Because it's not going to happen. But what they're likely to do is to reorganize the Environment and Natural Resources Division, reorganize it in a way that puts the focus on environmental justice you know, that creates a, a section that does affirmative litigation on environmental justice that'll cooperate with the, the Civil Rights Division on Title VI lawsuits. So that'll be really, really important. Now, Title VI refers to the Civil Rights Act, which prohibits discrimination on the basis of race, color, and natural origin in programs and activities receiving federal financial assistance. We recorded this interview before President Biden took office, and since then, Shalanda Baker, who you heard from in our previous episode, was named the first ever Deputy Director of Energy Justice at the U.S. Department of Energy and a hugely influential federal agency called FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Committee, also created new roles to address energy justice within a new Office of Public Participation. That office seeks to address those procedural justice concerns that Dr. Torres had sought to address during the Clinton administration. One of the things that we did when I was in the Clinton administration was to create something called the Office of Tribal Justice. And what the Office of Tribal Justice was designed to do was to coordinate all of the litigation relating to tribes, either by or against uh, tribes, coordinate them so they they would be consistent with the policy that the administration had. And the idea was simple. Look, if we have a policy dealing with with tribes, our responses ought to be consistent with that policy. That's one. There is some talk about creating something like that for environmental justice. If they do that, then what that office can do is to coordinate all of the responses across justice so that they're consistent with environmental justice. Now, remember the Justice Department, despite recent history, they are the lawyers for all of the agencies. There's an interagency process that occurs when litigation is filed. But they're, they are the lawyers for the agencies. They're also the lawyers for the American people. So if they are required to think about how a response, say, even in, let's say, antitrust, right? You wouldn't think of antitrust having environmental justice impacts. Well, I don't know what they might be yet. But if somebody's thinking about it, well, that's a good thing, right? Or let's say there's a tax case. Uh, well, you know, what is a change in tax policy? What kind of impact might it have on uh, environmental uh, justice decision-making. I mean, and I've just made those up, obviously, but you can go through you know, each of the, the divisions, and if you have a coordinating function that 
bring this idea uh, to the fore, well, you know, is it going to change things overnight? Of course not, right? Is it going to mean that decision-making inside the Department of Justice will be affected? Probably, right? And it will reinforce the government-wide effort that this administration claims it wants to take. And so advancing environmental justice through the mechanisms that Dr. Torres mentioned sound great, but how do they relate to clean energy policy? Take one major climate change and clean energy tool, cap and trade. It's the idea that a regulating agency will establish a permit system for polluting. So a total industry-wide pollution limit is set, and companies can each own rights to pollute up until that cap. That's the cap part of cap and trade. As the cap decreases over time, the permits become more expensive. Basically, it incentivizes companies to reduce pollution because they don't want to have to pay for the permits to pollute. So some companies find it cheaper to reduce pollution, but for others, it might be cheaper just to pay the permit price and keep polluting. So for companies that find it pretty cheap to lower their pollution, they can sell those permits to pollute to the companies who have a harder time evading pollution. And that's the trade part of cap and trade. The hope is that ultimately, as the permits become so expensive, companies are more and more willing to just abate that pollution rather than pay for the permits. And there are two major cap and trade systems in the U.S. that regulate carbon emissions. One is in California and one's in the northeastern states. It's called REGI, which is an acronym RGGI, and it stands for the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative. Cap and trade makes a lot of sense, right? It makes a lot of sense because it, it permits a more cost-effective way to reduce the overall emissions of greenhouse gases or just air pollution in general. It also means that the dollars that are spent cleaning up dirty plants um, are actually more efficiently spent getting the first 90% clean than the last 10% or the last 1%, so that it, it does kind of promise to actually reduce the total pollution load. The problem with it, and California faced this, they did address this, was that the cap and trade system meant that some dirty plants could continue polluting at the level that they historically had been without cleaning up. And so you created what the EJ community called hotspots. So yeah, cap and trade might be an efficient tool, but there are questions about how uniformly effective it is. The idea here is that the dirtiest plants, and therefore most expensive plants to abate, tend to be located in low-income and communities of color. So the cleaner plants, the ones generally easier to decarbonize, will get cleaner first. That's what the system is designed to do. It's designed to start with low-hanging fruit, but it also means that the communities with the dirtiest plants could be getting worse by comparison. You could, in theory, end up further concentrating all the pollution in traditional EJ communities. A fundamental issue here is that cleaner for the climate and cleaner for local air quality is not the same thing. Trying to get at both with one policy tool is challenging. And the reality is, we don't definitively know the effects of carbon cap-and-trade systems on EJ communities. So, like, if we look at the California cap-and-trade program, we've had studies that both show local air pollution has worsened in fence-line communities, and then also studies that show that the relative gap in pollution between EJ and non-EJ communities has actually shrunk. So there's definitely more work to be done to figure out the full effects of cap-and-trade. You have to tell the truth here, even though 
there's a, a substantial dispute over the efficacy of the hotspot analysis. It nonetheless did create a political backlash. And the thing that we all value, because we, we all want to do our part to reduce the impact of, on climate, ended up potentially producing greater negative impacts on environmental justice communities. And so while these exact impacts are unclear and the debate in California has been heated, the concerns have been enough to lead researchers and activists to consider ways to better incorporate EJ into cap and trade, to consider climate and local air pollution together. This might look like reducing the amount of carbon credits that any one corporation can purchase, or it might mean putting some restrictions on areas within which the trades can happen to account for where a plant's located and its impact on neighboring communities. Environmental justice you know, can be a slogan, right? It can be thought of very simply, but it's actually complex. And dealing with the complexities of it uh, is what makes it an interesting topic to deal with. Energy transition and how we move from fossil fuel-based energy to re uh, renewable energy it is going to change the, uh, some of the cost profiles, and it's also going to have impact, disparate impacts on communities. And so how that transition is made uh, is going to involve justice, justice issues as, as well. So the only thing to be done, it seems to me, is to put justice at the heart of the policies that you're making. So we want to extend a huge thanks to Dr. Torres for his time in taking us through energy justice. And we also want to thank you all, our listeners, because you took the time to think more about this critical piece of our policymaking landscape. This episode was written by Vera Borgmeyer and by me, Katie Evinger. It was edited by Ryan McAvoy, and our executive producer is Vera Borgmeyer. Thanks as well to Heather Fitzgerald for her production support. Our web design graphics were created by Hank Van Assen Designs, and our theme music is Reality Cartwheeled by Dr. Turtle. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at cbay.podcast at yale.edu. And on the website, you can find more information as well as our source list. And that is plural. So it's cbay.yale.edu forward slash podcasts.